0: Start your free trial by going to luminary.link note to self, or download the Luminary app for free.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Every night, right before I go to bed, I get an email.
1: How did your day go?
2: The subject line asks. And no, it's not from my mother. The email is from a service called O-Life. Some nights I respond with a lengthy recap of the situation at work or a funny quote from my three-year-old or a list of all the things I'm worried about. Other nights, it's just a quick line to remember something that happened that day. We went to Governor's Island on the ferry. It was very hot. The service compiles all my responses, and sometimes it sends one back to me.
1: Remember this?
2: It asks I decided to essentially automate my diary for two reasons. One, I was overwhelmed with guilt for not writing more consistently in my kids' baby books. And two, after switching my calendar over from paper to smartphone, I realized I missed those little notes I used to write to myself about who I ran into on the subway or just how stinky the Gowanus Canal was when I walked home that day.
1: Remember what's happened in your life.
2: That is O-Life's tagline. And I feel like it's getting harder for us to do that. And turns out, surprise, surprise, it's not just me. The move away from paper has been a blessing and a curse for biographers.
1: People are a lot more comfortable letting you empty out their storage facility or basement or garage than they are you, you know, hooking something up to their laptop.
2: Researching and remembering our icons. How the digital age is altering our biographies. It's New Tech City, WNYC's look at how technology is changing the way we live. I'm Anu Samarodi. And this week, we're also going to hear about how Google chat messages have infiltrated the wedding.
3: And he just, he just sends it to me and goes, I think she wants me. <laughs>
2: And how the workplace is getting the online dating treatment.
4: We use data to help match people with mentors who can help them accelerate in their careers.
2: Another personal relationship that we can outsource. Yay! For centuries, biographers relied on handwritten letters to bring historical figures to life, from Gandhi to Catherine the Great. But email, texts, Outlook have changed how these historians work and what they and their readers can learn about their subjects. Here's New Tech City's Ilya Meritz.
0: The authorized biography of Apple co-founder Steve Jobs was a huge bestseller. It's based on dozens of interviews, including more than 40 with Jobs himself. But one of the book's juiciest episodes comes from a string of emails. In 2003, Apple launched the iTunes Music Store – Instantly, Apple's rivals at Microsoft were kicking themselves. One email message read,
5: We were smoked. It was finally at 1046 that night when Bill Gates weighed in by email. This is Walter Isaacson, author of the book Steve Alden. Jobs. His subject line was, Apple's jobs again, it indicated his frustration. Steve Jobs' ability, he wrote, to focus in on a few things that count, to get people who get user interfaces right and market things uh, is amazing. It was sort of a wonderful exchange to know exactly what people were thinking at Microsoft when the iPod first came out. Right. I mean, you interviewed Bill Gates
0: for the book, but he probably wouldn't have expressed himself quite that way if you asked about that incident.
5: You know, when you interview people, you get their recollections. When you have the letters or the phone transcripts or the emails that they did at the time, you find that it's pretty different. These emails, by the way, are public because
0: they were part of a court case. Isaacson is now working on a book on the dawn of the digital age and the personal computer. Ironically, he's having a hard time getting the materials he really wants.
5: Uh, I just went out to California and did a whole set of interviews with Bill Gates and a guy named Al Alcorn who uh, founded Atari, and they have a lot of great memories, but I couldn't really extract the emails from them.
0: Isaacson won't say exactly why, but he says he despairs when he thinks of all the valuable electronic correspondence that's disappearing, as hard drives replace shoeboxes and albums as the place where our documents and photos go. William Stingone is curator of manuscripts at the New York Public Library. It's one of the few institutions now able to accept and preserve electronic materials.
1: It's really only been the last, say, ten years that we've started to address it Uh, seriously, knowing that most of what's going to be created from here on in is going to be created electronically.
0: So Harvard has John Updike's floppy disks. Emory has Salman Rushdie's emails. But Stingone says few of the would-be donors of major collections are thinking about their subject's digital legacy.
1: I always usually have to say, oh, and by the way, did you or did this person you're representing use a computer? Well, that causes a pause. One of the things we've had to confront is that people are a lot more comfortable letting you empty out their storage facility or basement or garage than they are you, you know, hooking something up to their laptop. To
0: demonstrate that it can be done and done right, the library in 2005 accepted a trove of thousands of electronic files from the September 11th fund. It was an umbrella nonprofit group that formed after the World Trade Center attacks. Um... The library's first-ever digital archivist, Donald Menerick, sits me down at a big computer monitor, very quickly resuming in on someone's Outlook files from a dozen years ago. It feels intimate, and yet very everyday at the same time.
4: You can kind of see, like, when they set up who their first contact that they put in their address book is, what their first appointment was.
0: So far, there hasn't been much scholarly interest in this material. But a big test is coming later this year, when the library will make public the archives of Timothy Leary, the psychologist who popularized LSD. Stingone says Leary loved computers.
1: Hundreds of disks with thousands of files on the many drafts of things that he wrote.
0: Crucially, this archive will be entirely searchable by keyword.
1: And so that's the real leap, because uh, what you find when you, once you have this massive amount of text... That you could pretty much put in any word you could think of and find something, you know. But whether that means it's relevant to what you're researching is is another question altogether.
0: For now, too much information is a problem researchers can only dream of. Emails, Instagram photos, and instant messages could be gold for historians and writers one day, but only if they're preserved. For WNYC, I'm Ilya Meritz. <laughs>
2: Bill Gates probably didn't know just how much his email cursing iTunes would add flavor and context to that Steve Jobs biography years later. And once in a while, we regular people text someone or dash off an email that down the road, we realize has major significance compared to the other digital detritus we produce every day. Next to me is Dan Tucker, New Tech City's producer and our resident wedding guest. Hello, Dan. Hi, Manouche. Now, Dan, I'm calling you our resident wedding guest because you are of a certain age. 31, (laughs) yeah. Yes, and you go to a lot of weddings. And you said something really funny the other day. You noticed something interesting about the weddings that you've attended recently.
6: Yeah, it seems like every wedding I go to these days, um, when it comes time for the speeches, for the toasts, uh, either the best man or the maid of honor gets up, uh, goes to the microphone to the dais, whips out a sheaf of paper, and starts reading. But Pretty standard, right? Yeah, it seems standard so far. But take a listen to what they're reading. Here's how one such speech maker at the wedding of my friends Josh and Kate started his story. Now through
3: Gmail, and Josh being dumb enough to blind copy me on all of her emails to Kate... <laughs> I was able to uncover the email string for you all to hear now.
2: <laughs> oh my God. Okay, first right, of all, yeah. the groom blind copied his friends on those emails that he liked a girl, basically. Yeah,
6: that's
3: what he did. Yeah,
2: and second of all, this so called friend read them aloud to everyone.
6: He did exactly place. that, and there's more, too. I
3: call their story the mixtape of November 2000.
6: <laughs> so, Manouche, for weeks leading up to the wedding, Brian Crowe, the guy that you just heard, combed through every Gmail, work email, and Gchat that Josh sent Kate in the days immediately after they met.
3: I want to apologize to Kate in advance.
6: Let me just set this up for you a little bit more. Josh first met Kate when his company was trying to place an ad in Timeout Chicago. Uh, That's where Kate was working as a marketing manager.
3: Josh first. Kate, it was a pleasure meeting you today, and thanks again. (laughs) And thanks again for making some time for us. It really means a lot to have Timeout on board. If you're in town, you better be at our New Year's party. I'll buy you a drink.
6: Winky face. No, winky face. You like that face. winky face there? Yes. Oh. And um, as you said, uh, Josh BCC'd uh, Brian on many of these emails, and some of those emails were Kate's, too. Oh, no. Oh, yes.
3: Kate's reply.
6: Josh, thanks for
3: stopping by yesterday. I really appreciate you taking the time to come by instead of just emailing. Everyone has been talking about this Kings of Leon album. I haven't heard it yet, but if it's your favorite album of the year, I think I better listen to it. Want to burn me a copy? Okay, this, this was the first initial string after they met at her office. And then after that string, Josh forwards me the email, and he just, he just sends it to me and goes,
6: I think she wants me. I can almost see Josh saying that. And it turns out that he was right. Um, Here's Kate from a later email.
3: It's rare that I blush so much while reading business emails. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. Smiley
6: face. Oh
2: no, there are those emoticons again.
6: (laughs) Yeah, um, pretty soon after that, they took their relationship offline.
2: Thank God. Dan, were you just totally squirming in your seat listening to this? I mean... This is pretty intimate stuff. It's kind of like having your personal diary read aloud.
6: Yeah, I I wouldn't say I was squirming. I was laughing. I mean, as you can hear there, the whole group, about 250 guests, were sort of falling off their seat laughing with some of these uh, jokes and emoticons and things. But I was sort of wondering, you know, how were Josh and Kate feeling at this point? It must have been, like you said, a little bit embarrassing. So um, I recently checked in with Josh, and here's what he had to say. I think it's the coolest thing ever th- that you have this. I mean, it's really kind of a, a snapshot or a look in on a relationship that you really can't get.
2: Okay, so he has a very good attitude about documenting his personal life. But honestly, Dan, what can we expect from a guy who C- BCC'd his best friend on some of the <laughs> the, the emails that he while well, he was wooing his uh, right, wooing future her. wife, <laughs> his wife to be. All right. Dan Tucker, New Tech City producer and resident wedding exposer is what I'm going to call you now. Sure. Okay. Thanks for being here. No problem. And now for something completely different.
4: Uh, This morning I had a bowl of oatmeal and a fruit shake and a cup of coffee.
2: We've been talking about reconstructing a life by looking at old emails and following other electronic crumbs. But meet a guy who wants to use data to build a relationship.
4: Two cups of coffee.
2: That's Mike Bergelson giving me a mic check. He's the CEO of a company called Everwise. Mike is trying to update the idea of mentoring in the workplace.
4: The role of mentorship, the role of coaching, helping people understand what makes sense now is as important, if not more so, than it's ever been. The idea that there can be – that there's a career ladder, that there is – A certain training that you take when you become a manager, that doesn't make sense anymore.
2: So Everwise takes information about an employee, like his LinkedIn profile, answers to a questionnaire, and plugs it all into an algorithm, and then pairs that worker with a mentor, usually a senior executive at another company. It's called workforce science, and Mike says companies are using it to make sure their employees know that they care.
4: They tell us these are... Uh, people who we view as up-and-coming talent in the organization. And then we use data that we collect on these people, for example, from LinkedIn and also through a series of questions that we ask them to match them with their ideal mentor. So like some popular dating sites do online, we use data to help match people with mentors who can help them accelerate in their careers.
2: So it's kind of an interesting thing to me because mentoring, I always thought of it as something incredibly sort of personal that like you and a Somebody older and wiser connect in some way and then together you forge this collegial relationship. And you're talking about data creating that relationship.
4: That's right. It it is you know, there were a lot of people, I think, twenty years ago who would have said the same thing about dating that I don't know, I go out to a That's restaurant, true. I go out to a bar, I go to a, a function at a church or synagogue, and I just meet somebody and the chemistry is there. And what, what we have seen over the last twenty years is in fact You can use data, and some sites have done a great job of of showing us this. You can use data to help make good matches.
2: And to make sure those matches blossom into relationships, Mike and his team pair people from different organizations, sometimes even different industries. That way, he says, there's less baggage. Employees are more likely to open up, not worry about retribution, kind of like not dating your friend's brother. Oh, and there's another thing.
4: We have relationship managers who help shepherd the process? They introduce themselves on a personal level to both partners.
2: Managers. Relationship managers. What absolutely. is a relationship manager? So this
4: is somebody who spends time, very much in the old school matchmaking sense, getting to know both partners. They're checking in throughout the process. If something goes wrong, which, you know, something is always going to go wrong, although that happens less often um, than we had originally hoped, which is great. When something goes wrong, the relationship managers are there to fix the problems.
2: Like preemptively assigning a therapist to a new couple. Which made me wonder, why would a busy executive bother investing him or herself in a relationship like this?
4: So that's a question we get all the time. What do mentors get out of it? Mentors love to give back. So the people who mentor with Everwise and elsewhere um, point out that they want to do for others what people have done for them. So this gives them an opportunity to give back to other people but to do it in an efficient way.
2: Mike says around 50 companies have signed up as members of Everwise so far, most of them in tech, which either says something about how open tech workers are to engineering their office relationships, or maybe makes me wonder if tech workers need help navigating those relationships to begin with. So you learned all about my weird relationship with my computerized diary at the beginning of the show, and now I want you to spill it. Tell me how tech has changed a personal ritual of yours at New Tech City on Twitter. And we'd also love to hear what you think of our new and improved podcast. Take a minute, rate us on iTunes, or just drop me a line at NewTechCity.org. I'm Anoush, This was New Tech City from WNYC. Thanks for listening.